Good morning and God bless to my friends at Trinity Alliance Church and anybody else who might be tuning into this. I really was looking forward to being with you personally, but um, obviously that's not possible at this moment in time. But um, we'll be back in just a little while. We'll be all back together again, uh, but we've got a pretty rough ride in the meantime. And I wanted to share uh, this uh, scripture and and set of thoughts with you about magnifying Christ. I shared the story part of this when I was uh, down in Poughkeepsie after their church burned down, and we were still trying to figure out, you know, how bad is it? And as it turns out, uh, if you burn the gym, but you don't burn the sanctuary, the sanctuary is still destroyed by the superheated smoke that goes through everything. So uh, they're processing that as well as they can, and um, so this is kind of what's on my heart right now, and so that's why I wanted to share it with you. Somebody also asked me, are you going to write something brand new, or are you going to use something that you've used before? Well, let me tell you a story about a guitar player by the name of Joe Walsh, who is a rock guy, and he was in the Eagles, and, you know, played on Hotel California, and other disreputable songs. But... He has his own songs, and uh, I saw him at a live concert, and he's introducing his own song, and he says, you know, if I had known how many times I was going to have to play this song, I would have written something else. <laughs> so um, this is a message I am now preaching for the third time in 16 years. So uh, that's a little bit different than... Uh, uh, the way it works in the music business. So, let's begin with a story. I included this as part of my story series in the book Faithfulness and the sermon series that went with it beforehand. And it tells the story of a nurse by the name of Susan Pachevsky. And nobody can pronounce her last name, so they call her Patch, uh, or else they call her Susan. And so, she is placed behind the American lines, the Allied lines, in World War II France. And the paratroopers have dropped. The Normandy invasion has taken place. The line of the war is pushing across France, and it's about to push through Belgium and into Germany. And uh, she's working in what at that time were called portable surgical hospitals. Shortly after World War II, they became uh, what is called mass units, and uh, were uh, designed to function in an even better way from everything they learned during World War II. And so she's there serving in a hospital that's receiving men from the front lines who are shot to pieces. They're burned, they're gassed, all sorts of terrible things have happened to them. And as a result of the intensity of her work as a Christian nurse in that setting, she's burned out, she's toasted. Uh, she's just worked and worked and worked until she's used up all of her personal resources and really has to be set aside to rest uh, by people who are watching out for her. And so this part of the story occurs as she's waking up after a good night's sleep. She's had a little bit of rest, and she's thinking that the words of her chaplain, Chappy Jim, are extremely important. And he has said to her, he said, Susan, you need to understand, um, there's a God who's watching over all of this. It's all on him, and you can't do what only he can do. 
So you have to let him bear the burden of God's own work. And that frees you uh, to be who you are and to just give it all to him and give him all the glory. So she's processing all of that, and she's thinking about that. And she gets up early in the morning. She goes outside her tent. She's spinning around, looking at this beautiful sky with puffy clouds. And then she hears the sound of airplanes. Now, understand that. Um, the hospital and where the nurses live and the airfield where uh, the uh, bombers are coming in and out and the fighters are coming in and out are all within, you know, a few miles of each other. Uh, but there's a little separation between where the hospital is and where the bombers are because they didn't want the hospital to get bombed. So she hears the planes coming and she thinks, well, okay, so this is some guys who are out uh, doing a training run. They're, they're doing takeoffs and landings and other things normally. And then she realizes that that's not true, that in fact, the planes are bombing the airfield. She hears pops. She hears thumps. She hears ammo dumps going up in gigantic explosions. And then she realizes the planes are coming their way. She's frozen for a minute. And then as a woman who is discovering her leadership gift, she starts screaming out, incoming! And there are planes coming right at them, shooting up the place where they live. Obviously, they're shooting up the airfield and they're shooting up the hospital. So it's up to her to figure out, what am I supposed to do next? And, and she gets all the other uh, female nurses uh, together inside a tent. Uh, make sure that they're all inside and not visible to be shot. And they're standing there just utterly in fear, not knowing what to do. And at a certain point, Susan has a realization that she didn't pick this. Nobody chooses it. And she really only has a small number of choices at this moment in time. And so she looks at the other nurses and she says, you know what? If I'm going to get shot, and it looks like if I stay here, that might well happen, I'm going to get shot doing what God called me here to do. I'm going to the hospital to take care of those boys because they need me. And then she looks at the other nurses and she says, is anybody with me? And one by one, all of their hands go up and they run all the way to the hospital. Well, have you ever gotten into the middle of something and wondered, what exactly am I doing here? How did I get to this spot? Um, or you might actually feel like you've been backed into a situation um, and wondered, why is this happening to me? And, and what are my actions supposed to be about? Well, we've been told very clearly in Scripture, and I think of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Verse 31 says, whatever then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now that sounds like painting with a huge broad brush, but it's also a tremendous challenge. And then he expanded on that thought in Colossians when he wrote to them and said, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And so, wrapped up, in, if you're doing it all in the name of Jesus, wrapped up in the name of Jesus is everything that makes him who he is. All of his wonderful attributes and his character. So, 
we're supposed to be doing everything that we do in a way that shows Jesus to the world in a wonderful way and gives glory to God the Father while we're thanking him all the way. So it's very important to realize that um, our purposes on earth are not to just do religious things. You know, I, I am reminded that uh, there was some, some book written uh, by a woman Bible teacher for other women to use, and uh, it has some sort of re- remark about going beyond just being a good Bible study girl. You know, uh, what does God want from a Christian? And it's far beyond just doing religious things. In fact, everything we do is destined and should be purposed by us to magnify Christ. And I think it's probably true that lots of people don't understand that this is exactly why Christians are on the earth, that everything they do points to God, that makes him look good, and gives people a reason to think that God is great because they're watching us. Well, the letter to Philippians, where we're going to spend our time, and I'd invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 1, was written by Paul from a jail cell where he was awaiting what was the outcome of a death sentence. He didn't know if he was going to live or die. I'm aware that the whole world, right at this moment, as I am recording this, is uh, watching a deadly virus take one life after the next, and nobody knows exactly who it's going to be, young or old. Uh, We really don't know. And so, you know, the question is, what kind of an attitude should... Christians have in circumstances like Paul on death row or or us in the middle of a pandemic. And Paul's answer is amazing. And I would encourage you to hear this and then go back and study this and pray through it and say, God, what are you speaking to my heart? Because I don't think you just get this like that. I don't think Paul did. But, but listen to where he's at as a person who's processed all of this, and he's ready to speak with great clarity. That's Philippians 1. Uh, 12 through 14. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known through the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Amazing. Amazing. I think he's saying this. He's saying, this looks bad, but look at how Christ is being magnified through my suffering. And he goes on to reveal some very deep things about what it means to live for God in a fallen world. And we pick up at verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, And I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I I love his settled determination where he says, and I'm, I'm reminded of some psalms that say similar things and other places in Scripture where he says, look, whatever is happening, I will rejoice. That's a choice. 
Now, I remember hearing a message from C.J. Mahaney when I was in college on a cassette, if any of you remember what those were. And he basically, the message was five things that God has placed within the realm of human choice. And whether or not you rejoice is one of those things. So Paul says, I'm choosing this. This is what I'm going to do based on my faith. And then he gives the reason for it. He says, if exalting Christ is the most important thing, then whether by my life or by my death, Christ will be exalted in my body. That's a radical life principle. And if magnifying Christ is our goal, he might be best magnified in our deaths. I would urge you to put that on your lifetime prayer list as something to ponder. He might also uh, choose to glorify himself through some great difficulty or suffering. He also, on the other hand, might be glorified by doing a miraculous provision of some kind for you, whether it's health or finances or relationship or anything. Um, but, But Paul just wraps it all up and basically says, fine, let it be God's will so long as Christ is magnified. I'm also reminded of uh, a, a, a thing that I learned by clarification from John Piper, uh, a really great thought that our living that way, our magnifying Christ, is how people who don't know God see Christ. So if our level of commitment to the magnification of Christ is very high, if people can see that we have placed him above everything else in our lives, they will read us because they can't see him, at least not until they believe, but they will read us and get some idea of how great God is. Well, the temptation, uh, if we say, yes, we're going to magnify Christ with everything, um, there's a temptation to try to do this by good intentions. Okay, that's my intention. That's what I'm going to do now. And I just want to say that that's a guaranteed failure. There is no human being on earth who can simply say, I am going to live above all my personal welfare and act like it doesn't matter. Nobody can do that. It's simply not possible because it lacks the reason for living a transcendent life like that. And uh, Paul goes on to speak about that in uh, verses 21 through 24. What's the reason? How can he do this? He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not which to, I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions, having desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary, for your sake. I'm just left speechless by this um, um, that he could rejoice in this way, one way or another. And when we think about all the possible causes for life and death that we might experience or suffering and all of those things, Paul saw his predicament as a win-win situation um, that he couldn't possibly lose by this. The failure was impossible. And that's why we need to know why it's the case. Why is that? Well, you know, Paul as an unsafe person had loved all sorts of worldly things. And I'm not sure he was the sort of person who ever caught, caught up in the the expensive robes that the Pharisees wore. I don't really know about that. Or, you know, if he, if he partook in all the money that the Pharisees got through the regulated offerings that they forced on the Israelites. But I do know this. He was a power player. And he was the one who was 
singled out to persecute the early church. And uh, that's a powerful thing for somebody who has that in their soul that, yeah, it, it fed something. It was an engine for him until God broke him. Uh, and so he did love other things besides Christ. And those things were set aside. And he set all of those things aside for one reason, to be with Christ. The presence of his Lord, having become a believing man. And he worked this out in such a way that he was able to live by prizing Christ above absolutely everything else. He's the one he valued the most. So how does this work? Let's get some, let's get some practical stuff here. Uh, I, I'll just share with you that when I read those verses, even as I'm preaching them to you, I'm blown away by them. I just read them, and I'm like, I don't know how I can do that. <laughs> uh, how can that be? You know, so somebody, I'm just a regular guy, you know, I'm just a regular Christian. And um, I want to give some practical help about how to do this, how to work on that. And if you flip a couple pages over or swipe sideways on your phone Bible, however that works for you, in uh, Philippians 3, 7 and 8, he gives a little insight into how to go about doing this. And he says this, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. I'm indebted to Watchman Nee for a concept that I learned by reading one of his books, and he called it, the phrase was, the thing in hand, what you've got in your grip. And it aptly describes this whole spiritual dynamic, and basically it comes down to this. Whatever earthly things we grip onto prevent us from gripping onto Christ as our highest thing. So uh, a good example of this was... Um, Beautiful German Shepherd that belonged to the neighbor next door. I love having dogs, but I can't have them because I have allergies, so I enjoy my neighbor's dogs. And every once in a while, I actually talk one of them into letting me go on a, uh, one of those road races where the dog runs with you. Uh, I think the dogs all think that's amusing, <laughs> and it's easy for them. They, they just trot along while we're running. But anyway, uh, Otis next door was this beautiful German Shepherd, and Otis was intent on the game of fetch. So if he saw you, he would go get his ball and come to you. And so basically, he trained us to throw the ball to play the game of fetch. And he was, he was really great at it. I mean, you'd huck that thing all the way down the yard. He would snatch it out of the air. If you threw it on the ground, he'd snuffle it up off the ground. And the most amazing one, from my point of view, is if you threw it badly, and it went into a big bush of some kind, he would simply ram his head right into the bush, pull the ball out, and bring it back to you, drop it on the ground and say, like, throw it again, throw it again. And he would just go and go and go with that. Unless he threw two balls. And what we discovered was that Otis couldn't work it out. He couldn't figure out what to do. So he'd see the balls go, He'd run like crazy as usual, planning to do exactly what he always did. He'd snarf up one of the balls in his mouth, and then he would just stop. And he'd look down at the second ball, 
looked back at you, looked back at the second ball, and he couldn't figure out what to do. Because in order to pick up the second ball, he would have had to have dropped the one that was already in his mouth. It's kind of like, I, I kind of, like, I like to put words to animals. Hey, okay, well, you threw the ball, and I, I got the ball. And, and now there's this other ball, and I'd love to pick up this other ball with my mouth, but I already have one. So anyhow, that's what we do with the things of this life. Our hands are full of them. When Christ enters the picture, we need to understand our hands are already full. We're already, we're already packed up uh, to the limit, and we've got to drop the earthly things, no matter how good they seem, in order to grab onto Christ and to prize him above all the other things. So, this is a multi-step process. Let's look at how Paul went through it. First, he says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss. This starts out as a reckoning. Uh, he says, I count them as loss. He's saying, all of those things get subsumed under Christ. I let them go. Uh, they may still be in my life, but I don't possess them. I don't grip onto them. I don't own them. In the Alliance, we call this the crisis of sanctification. That's a, a complicated set of terms that basically means selling out, is how the old Bible preachers used to say, or, or you know, giving your life over, a total commitment to Christ Jesus. And, and subsuming everything that you are and everything that you have under his oversight and leadership. So we have to reckon on this. We have to choose to, to make this happen. And I, I believe that most Christians don't get this on the day that they're saved. Maybe they would if they came to church for a long time before they believed in Christ, so they would understand everything that that meant. Uh, but it's very clear in Scripture that certainly Paul the Apostle urged the Christians to do this thing. And I think of Romans 6 and Romans 12, where he says, consider yourselves as living sacrifices. Reckon on this. Choose to see this, because this is what it really is and what it really needs to be. So, so Paul begins by describing this letting go of things as a spiritual event in his past, where all of his personal resources were given over to the availability of Christ. And so I would ask you, have you done that? Have you done that? Um, if you're a believer in Jesus, this is not an optional add-on. This is God's destiny. Uh, we know very clearly that the will of God is our sanctification. So don't skip this step. This is spiritual in nature. You don't have to throw out all of your stuff to go through this. Paul then explains that this letting go of things, letting go of the thing in hand, was a present tense reality for him. He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost, like right now. This is not one of those scenarios where you said, well, yeah, I had the sanctification experience 12 years ago, and so I don't have to, uh, I'm glad that's over with, you know, I'm done with that. Um, no, no, it's, it's never over, because the prizing of Christ, the, the gripping onto him, that we can only do when we're not gripping onto all of our, our stuff, that's every day. Every day we wake up and do that uh, over and over again. And so uh, relinquishing the thing in hand has to, be, has to be done every day. It's the only way to have a life set apart for God. Uh, I will tell you just as a personal reflection, I'm still losing things. <laughs> and I don't mean misplacing them. I mean they are going out of my life, even very good things. 
in order that I might focus on what Christ wants me to do right now, to give him the glory in my life and to, and to be the man of God that he's called me to be. And, and so that started in 1974. Um, there's so much I could say about that. Maybe I could share it with you on a personal level at some other time. Uh, but, you know, here it is now quite a long way, while since 1974, and I'm still losing things, uh, things that are perfectly good things. In fact, they're even wonderful things, but there just isn't space for them in my service to Christ right now. And so I would just urge you to think that's not really a loss because if you are gaining Christ, you've, you've got everything you really need. Now, here's something very interesting. He not only reckons them in the past as loss, he not only counts them as loss in the present tense, he also loses the thing in real life. In other words, not just actually letting them, not just spiritually letting them go, but actually losing them. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things. And it's important to know that he's not saying um, the losing of things is a way to be more spiritual. He's not saying that. That's a practice or a philosophy called asceticism. And uh, the monks of old were into that. And uh, some of the uh, religions like Buddhism, they do this. And, and, and some other religions today, they do that. That's not really part of Christianity. Um, what he's saying is, is that the earthly things were dispensed as necessary in order to magnify Christ in real time. He uses a very dramatic word here. He says he counted all of his assets to be rubbish or dung. Uh, it's the Greek word skubalon for those of you who are interested in such things. And he says, this is how I regard them compared to knowing Christ. And he's talking about perfectly good things. But compared to knowing Christ, they're, they're cast-offs. I pushed them away from me. Think of how motivated you are to get rid of smelly things in your house. I remember one time uh, we got some bad chicken and, uh, you know, Barb cracked open the package and uh, she said, here, get rid of this. So I just threw it in the garbage pail in the garage, but I didn't put it in a garbage bag. So I forgot about it and we threw other garbage on top of it. It was summertime and you can imagine what was happening in there. I was absolutely smacked in the face when I opened the lid. It just stank so badly. So I'm like, all right, I'll get rid of this. I clean it up, da-da-da. I hit it with some great detergent thing. I hose it out. Still stank to high heaven. I bleached it out. I scrubbed it out. I think eventually we threw out the garbage pail. I just couldn't get rid of the stink. Well, that's how intently Paul says, the stuff that's in the way of knowing Christ, I'm going to deal with it so energetically that it can't possibly get in the way of walking with Christ my Lord, glorifying Him and enjoying His presence. So, so I ask you as I conclude today, have you learned to prize Christ above everything on earth? It's the essence of worship. You know, um, we do an awful lot of chit-chat in the evangelical church today about forms of worship. What do you like? What do you don't like? Uh, do you lean toward the orthodox practices? Do you like old hymns? Do you like contemporary music? Do you like Christian rock? What do you really like? And nothing about this has anything to do with that. In fact, um, the magnification of Christ is part of all life. You can 
you can clean out a garbage can and magnify Christ because you're being a faithful family member. Absolutely anything that you do can be part of giving glory to God. So it might be that your death will magnify Christ more than your life if your death reveals that you desire Christ above all earthly things. He may be magnified by your continued life if you live in such a way that everyone can see that for you, Christ is the thing that you prize most. Well, Nurse Patch, at my beginning story there, knew that God had placed her in the theater of war to give medical and also spiritual care to injured servicemen and servicewomen. And then the Luftwaffe came screaming down out of the sky with their Stukas and their Messerschmitts to bomb and to strafe. And when they did that, she could have run into the trees. She could have crawled under a truck uh, to put an engine block between her and the machine guns. But she chose to honor God by doing what God sent her to do, live or die. And in fact, she rejoiced to do it because it magnified Christ in her life. And she also became a leader of others because the other nurses followed her as well. So when God gives us those special opportunities to magnify Christ in a powerful way, can we count the cost and say, I don't care how much it costs in time, money, or effort. I rejoice to magnify Christ. I think we're in a moment like that. Uh, in the middle of a pandemic. What will God call upon us to do? We're barely figuring it out just now. Um, at the time that I'm recording this message, the number of cases is shooting up like a skyrocket, and we really don't know exactly when it will peak or how many people will be infected and will die. We just don't know any of those things. But we can enter this time with the conviction that whatever I do, whatever opportunities God gives me, I'm going to use them for the glory of Christ. Um, maybe it will cost me something. Maybe I'll have to share things that I have. Maybe I will help, have to help the sick or the aged um, or, or people who live by themselves and to have anyone to help them. Um, who knows what God will ask us to do, but I would urge you to face God with this thought in prayer. Lord, I want to, I want to magnify you above everything else, and I am willing to put everything on the line in order to glorify your name. I think you can't really go into the ministry without that. It's, uh, I still remain amazed, even now as a district superintendent, uh, observing the commitment of heart of men and women who are serving God, and they are, they are suffering all sorts of deprivations themselves. Uh, nobody goes into this for the money, um, and, and they're doing it because they love God. And they want to glorify his name and lead others to Christ. So I would urge you, pray yourself into readiness to say yes when God gives you that special opportunity to magnify his name. There's also uh, an important job, I think, that can be done in prayer uh, and, in, and in meditation and in consideration of God's word to figure out how do I magnify Christ by every means every day? How about your television viewing? How about that? How about your occupation? How do you glorify Christ there? Your sports, your reading, your relationships, your house, your car, your daily energies, your money, your future inheritances, your time, absolutely everything. And this is one reason for meditation. 
um, Christian meditation has a, a bunch of different ways to go about doing it, but one of the key things to do is to think about your life and think about how is this part of my life glorifying to Christ? And answer it that way. Uh, don't think of it in terms of some sort of legalistic thing. What am I permitted to do? What am I not permitted to do? Well, there's a time for that. But above that, how can God be given glory by the way that I live? I guarantee that if you do that, you're going to take a leap forward in your goal of magnifying Christ. And what you'll discover is that giving Him glory and receiving blessing from Him, because you're doing that, will become the sweetest thing that you know on earth. Now, none of that can start to come to pass until you're a believer in Jesus. You must have received Him as your Lord and Savior before you can even get off the dime with respect to that. And so, um, God is glorified when we go to Him with a great sense that we understand that we're sinners and that Christ has died to pay for those sins. And when we throw ourselves on the mercies of God to seek forgiveness, God is glorified. It's to His great pleasure when one of His lost ones comes to know Him and becomes part of His forever family. So. Make sure you start there. Don't miss that. Let's pray. Father, this is a, a, a set of thoughts and a subject that just, it plows me under. It's so deep. And yet, Lord, it's the key to everything that we do as believers. And I pray for myself. I pray for everyone who's listening or watching this, Lord, that you'll help us with this, that you'll help us go deep with you by learning to bring everything into conformity with this great goal, that Christ will be magnified in our lives, whether we live or die, whether it's easy or hard, whether we're rich or poor, or any of those things. And Lord, thank you that you bless us when we magnify Christ. And knowing you in this way is the sweetest thing that we can ever know. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.